our way through the book of Acts. It's essentially the story of a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God turning the world upside down for the glory of Christ, if I could summarize it very briefly. As I mentioned over the past couple weeks, we're only a few chapters in and already we've been given a front row seat to some of the most incredible moments in redemptive history, the, the resurrected Jesus walking planet Earth, the ascension of Jesus to the Father's right hand in glory, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the likes of which the world had never known up to that point, some of the greatest sermons ever preached, the, the conversion of 3,000 souls in a single day, if you can imagine that, and one of the, the earliest expressions of the New Testament church in action going back to the end of Acts chapter 2. Last week, we spent a little bit of time in the epicenter of religious activity, the temple of God in the city of God, Jerusalem, as we saw Peter perform a miracle invoking Jesus's power and presence in the healing of a man who had been paralyzed from birth, a miracle that, that managed to attract a pretty good crowd so that Peter had an opportunity to deliver his second recorded sermon in this book of the Bible. It's a sermon in which he declared the glory of Christ a sermon in which he declared the responsibility and complicity of the crowd in Jesus's death, and a sermon in which Jesus, or, or Peter called them to repent and turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Pretty good sermon, I would say. This morning, we get a front row seat to the response of the crowd, as well as the religious leaders. It's the first recorded public persecution in the book of Acts. It's gonna be exciting. If you have a Bible, you can open up uh, to Acts chapter four. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Take that with you as the church's gift to you. If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you brought in with you is difficult to track with, we're happy for you to take that. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll get after it this morning. God, as we open up chapter four of this incredible adventurous book of the Bible, as we see the apostles facing public persecution, particularly in a context like ours, I think it would be very easy for us to just write this off and go, this doesn't have much to do with me. After all, I live in a, a pretty affluent context in which I'm not sure the word persecution is even fair to throw around. And yet, I think there is a great deal for us to glean from this particular passage of Scripture to take away with us uh, a number of things that are both encouraging and comforting. And so, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see those things, that we would walk out emboldened, humble, courageous, empowered, trusting people who really put some significant dents in the gates of hell for your glory and our joy. Holy Spirit, would you move Apart from your moving, the, the moments that we have together to come will be futile at best. We need you. We desperately need you. Move in power. In the name of the risen Jesus, I pray. Amen. So picking up where we left, uh, left off last week, as, as chapter three comes to a close, Peter is declaring to the crowd that Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. He's the one that all of the Old Testament prophets were essentially pointing to and speaking of, that if his name can cause this man who's been paralyzed from birth to rise up and leap through the temple courtyard in perfect health, then surely he must be the promised one, the promised Messiah. Jesus was sent to bless the nations, Peter preaches, but he was first sent to you, Israel, to bless you by turning you from your wickedness. 
That's how chapter three ends. Chapter four tells us, picking up in verse one, and as they were speaking to the people. So, so right in the middle of Peter's sermon, it says the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The, the Sadducees were the, the ruling class of wealthy aristocrats, you might say. They enjoyed some of the most privileged positions in society. Politically speaking, they got along pretty well with the Romans. They didn't like for the boat to be rocked too much, which is exactly what the apostles are doing in this moment, right? Theologically speaking, they were first century liberals. They didn't believe in supernatural things like angels or the resurrection of the dead, the very doctrine that the apostles happened to be unashamedly declaring in the public square. I remember when I was in seminary, I took a, a class with one of the most brilliant men I've ever, I've ever met, a guy by the name of John Frame. He taught a, a history of philosophy and Christian thought class. And I remember the very first lecture I walked in and sat in on, one of the first things out of his mouth was, we're going to walk through a few thousand years of philosophical thinking of views on the, on, the, on the Christian idea of what we are to make of the world and how to think about the world and our purpose for existing. And he said, and here's the deal, nothing has changed in several thousand years. Human beings still bring the same kind of opposition that they did in the earliest days of the Greek philosophers, be it uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were essentially the hyper-fundamentalists of their day, and the hyper-liberals, who sought to add to the scriptures legalistically on the one hand, or take away things like supernatural works from the scriptures, things that just didn't seem to jive with their way of thinking. There's nothing new under the sun, and as we'll see momentarily, we'll get there soon enough, that should encourage us because we actually know what we're up against in some sense as Christians on the mission field. Verse three, we're told, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. That the Sadducees, along with the priests and the chief of the temple police, I don't know what kind of authority he had, if he was like a university cop or if he had legitimate ability and jurisdiction, but, but he was there, along with the Sadducees and the priests, and, and they had Peter and John arrested, the first recorded public persecution in this book of the Bible. Jesus himself had said to the disciples in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The Peter and John here in Acts chapter four are experiencing the persecution that, that Jesus said would come. Being that it's too late in the evening to bring the council together, they throw the boys in the slammer overnight. But just in case you were worried about the advancement of the gospel at this point in the story, Luke tells us that in the midst of the persecution, another 2,000 souls are added to the church, and that's a conservative guess because that might not even include women and children. Verse five, the story continues. 
On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? This is a, a gathering of what was known as the Sanhedrin. It was the, the Jewish Supreme Court on religious matters, you might say. It was made up of 71 people presided over by the high priest, including the elders and the teachers of the law. We're talking about Bible nerd university here. Like these people knew the scriptures really, really well. If the names Annas and Caiaphas sound familiar, it's because they both played a, a significant role in the trial and, and execution of Jesus himself. You read about these men in the gospel accounts. Talk about deja vu for the apostles. Right? There, there's no way that they're expecting a fair shake here. This is practically the same court that presided over Jesus's trial, his bogus trial, by the way, unjustly condemning Jesus to death. In this moment, you gotta imagine that the boys are, are wondering if they're destined to the same fate, to be handed over to the Romans to be crucified in this moment. At the same time, and this is what I love about this passage, think about the deja vu that the religious leaders must be experiencing in this moment. Hey, I thought we were done with this whole Jesus hysteria thing. Didn't we get rid of him? We're dealing with the same stuff after his death that we were dealing with before his death. And it's really at its heart, an issue of authority. You have those in authority, those in power, asking Peter and John who gave them the authority, the power to do these things. Like, we didn't give you the authority, and it's ours to give or withhold. So what's going on here? Verse eight tells us, then Peter, I love this, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. We've talked about this before. Then Peter the one in St. Peter who just a few months before had denied knowing Jesus in the presence of an adolescent girl, now standing before 71 of the most powerful men in the city of Jerusalem. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. If that doesn't declare and give you hope of spirit empowerment for bold proclamation of the gospel, I don't know what will. Jesus had said back in Luke 21, picking up in verse 12, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, people who are very important in society. Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict, which, by the way, we're gonna see play out perfectly by the time we get to the end of this morning's passage. That emboldened by the Spirit, given words and wisdom by Jesus Christ himself. Peter gives Jesus the glory for healing the, the man that uh, took place on, on the day before this uh, as they were outside the temple. But he goes even further than that. He goes on to do the same exact thing that got him in prison in the first place the day before, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly and unashamedly. Look at verse 11. 
It says, this Jesus, Peter says, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That Peter takes the language of, of Psalm 118, which is where you originally see this idea of a cornerstone to be rejected, and he shows that it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. We sing it all the time around here, scorned by the ones he came to save. That Jesus used these very words himself, this rejected cornerstone language in the parable of the wicked tenants to show how the religious leaders of Israel had rejected him. He's the stone that the builders, Peter's very audience, had rejected, now the cornerstone of the church. Words we sing all the time around here from a different song. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Cornerstone is also known as a foundation stone. It's the first stone set in the the construction of a masonry foundation. It's, It's of utmost importance because all of the other stones are set in reference to the cornerstone, determining the position of the entire structure, whether it stands or falls. It's kind of like the bottom corner piece in a Jenga game, right? If someone invites you over to hang out and you walk in and there are board games all over the place, including a giant Jenga tower, and you're not a board game person, what's the easiest way to get yourself out the door quickly? Which, by the way, that's not a hit on board game people. I can get just as cutthroat as anybody with a Monopoly or Settler's board in front of me, but if you're wanting to get out of that place, what do you do? You pull out the bottom corner piece, right? Crumbles to the ground, game over, have a nice life, see you on the flip side. Like, that's kind of how it goes, and you're out the door, right? On to the next social gathering. The the unashamed declaration of Christianity is that Jesus is the only sure bottom corner piece. That's what Peter's saying in verse 11. On Christ the solid rock we stand, any other foundation that we stand on, we fall. We crumble like a Jenga tower. Which brings up a really important question, I think, for those of us who come in this morning professing to know and love and follow Jesus. What are you functionally building your life on this morning? If you asked a trusted Christian friend, what's the functional cornerstone of my life right now? What would he or she say? As we build our lives upon the only sure foundation, Jesus Christ, we're brought together to form this structure known as the church, which will never collapse because Jesus is the one holding it up from the ground, the cornerstone. Peter says, the same Jesus you did your best to discard just healed a man. And that walking, leaping miracle is a visible declaration that you guys are actually the ones on trial here. You you see the, the, the tables turned as you continue to work your way through chapter four. That it's really the the religious leaders who stand on trial in this moment before God. Peter goes even further to boldly say in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Talk about a slap in the face of religious pluralism. The belief that, that all faiths lead to God that everyone is climbing up the same mountain and we're all just taking different paths to get there and we'll all just eventually get to the the top, namely the presence of God forever. We'll all end up in the same place at the finish line. Peter in verse 12 says something really bold here. 
And by the way, he's only saying what Jesus has already said for himself. Back in John chapter 14, verse six, Peter had, or Jesus had declared to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That Jesus himself declared that there's one path that leads to the top of the mountain and it was paved with Jesus's very own blood. Peter is simply affirming Jesus' own words here in verse 12, declaring the hope of salvation in Christ alone. John Stott says in, in his commentary on Acts 4, he says, Peter's two negatives, no one else and no other name, proclaim the positive uniqueness of the name of Jesus. His death and resurrection, his exaltation and authority constitute him the one and only Savior since nobody else possesses his qualifications Another way we could say what Peter's saying in verse 12, there's only room at the right hand of the Almighty for one, and his name is Jesus. In the midst of a room full of religious leaders, all adorned in their priestly robes, well-versed in the scriptures, Peter says, you're getting it all wrong. It's Jesus or destruction. It's Jesus or judgment. It's Jesus or hell. What an incredibly offensive statement in our culture, is that not? The U.S. is becoming more and more pluralistic by the day. It's considered intolerant to claim that your religion is the only right religion. Derek Thomas, in his commentary on Acts, says, and and I think this is a critical distinction, and ask yourself where you stand as you hear this quote. He says, in our own time, it is not the statement that Jesus saves that is offensive, but the insistence that he alone can save, thus making every other religion false and a form of idolatry. In his book entitled The Reason for God, which if you've never read that, I would commend to you. It's a great apologetic read. Tim Keller talks about being invited to participate in a panel discussion with a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam to talk about the differences among world religions. And this is how he describes that panel discussion. He says, the conversation was courteous, intelligent, respectful in tone. Each speaker affirmed that there were significant irreconcilable differences between the major faiths. A case in point was the person of Jesus. We all agreed on the following statement. Listen to this. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as he really is. The bottom line was, Keller says, we couldn't all be equally right about the nature of God. That according to Acts chapter 4, according to the very words of Jesus in John 14, you can be a religious pluralist if you like, But according to both Jesus and Peter, you cannot include Christianity in that spiritual mixing bowl. That according to the scriptures, there is no such thing as a Christ-exalting form of religious pluralism. Peter's saying the very same name in whom the lame beggar was healed, it's that name and only that name by which we can know salvation. And so a a significant question for, for us this morning Are you trusting in Jesus for salvation? Is he your only hope for rescue? If not, I invite you to turn to him now and to declare him to be the only sufficient savior to receive the salvation that's yours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. The same Jesus who raised the lame beggar in Acts chapter three. 
Peter's argument up to this point is, is really brilliant. It really is. He, he says, you can deny that we have power or authority, but if we didn't, this man would still be paralyzed at the temple gate. That's your first problem. Secondly, we're proclaiming that this power came from Jesus, and you can't deny that Jesus did this kind of thing all the time. That's your second problem. Number three, if he's still performing the same kind of miracles of healing today that he did before his crucifixion during his public ministry, well, that shows that he's still alive, though you really gave it the old college try and seeking to destroy him. Problem number three. And number four, he's not only the one who physically heals, but the one who brings about spiritual healing of the soul. To reject him is to reject your only true hope. It's a powerfully bold proclamation that Peter makes here in Acts chapter four, such that, verse 13, we're told, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and thus they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Like, these guys didn't even go to seminary, much less a public speaking class. On the one hand, who do you think you are teaching uh, large public crowds about religion with no religious degree hanging on the wall of your study. We're the credentialed ones around here. On the other hand, man, we're struggling to win an argument with these guys. This feels exactly like it did when Jesus walked the earth during his public ministry. We can never win a battle with Jesus, and he didn't go to seminary either. The, the religious leaders had, had worked so hard to earn their position in the community which I think helps to explain, at least in part, as to why they were missing the gospel altogether. It's oftentimes, is it not, those of influence and status who struggle most to grab hold of salvation by sheer grace, which I think there's something in there for us in this affluent context in which people are so well credentialed. The religious leaders are astonished, and at the same time, they're speechless. Verse 14 tells us, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition fulfilling Jesus's words. But, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. It's almost as if to say, we can't respond publicly. We gotta huddle up and talk about this so that we don't sound like complete bumbling idiots when we open our mouths. Verse 15, they came together saying, conferring, what shall we do with these men? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. I, we can't deny the miracle. The man standing right in front of us, people have seen him outside the temple gate for roughly four decades. Again, the religious leaders are the ones who are ultimately on trial here. And exhibit A is the leaping paralytic running through the courtroom. Like, we got to put a stop to this nonsense we know you did a good deed to a crippled man, verse nine, but you did that in the name of Jesus and that's kind of problematic for us. It just goes to show the hardness of the human heart, does it not? Whatever it takes to protect one's own interests, even when faced with an undeniable miracle. Reminds me of John chapter 11, verse 47, where we're told the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And listen to this. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Similarly here in Acts chapter four, the religious leaders don't ask, what must we do to be saved? 
They ask, what must we do to preserve ourselves, to preserve our power, to preserve our authority, to preserve our own comfort and safety and position? And here's the irony of it all. In the name of self-preservation, they're seeking to do away with the mention of, of the very one name under heaven in whom their own salvation and preservation can be found. It's almost as ironic as the middle of the book of Esther. You remember that when the tables were turned? Verse 18 goes on to tell us, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Like, we, we get it, guys. You have some level of authority. We understand that. And we're happy to respect that authority as long as it doesn't call us to go against God. But in this case, we cannot and will not go against the supreme authority of the supremely valuable risen Jesus. It, it's it's a roundabout way of saying to those in this moment who have the greatest appearance of godliness on the scene that you're actually in opposition to God. That we have to choose between you and him, which means you're against him. I'm reminded of passages like those found in 1 Peter chapter 2 and Romans 13, which make plain that we're called to submit to those in authority around us as long as those authorities are not commanding us to do what God forbids or forbidding us to do something that, that God commands. In this case, Peter and John are probably recalling Jesus's very own words, his commandments. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or how about just a couple of chapters back, Acts chapter one, verse eight, where Jesus says, but, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That, that Peter and John are faced in this moment with obeying the religious leaders or Jesus. And they assume that they have to choose between the two and rightly assume King Jesus. So that we're told in verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I mean, the healing of a man who's been paralyzed for roughly four decades is, I would imagine, a pretty remarkable thing to see. It stirs the crowd to praise, makes it virtually impossible for the religious leaders to punish these guys. How can anyone be punished for this? A good deed done to a helpless man. In the end, we're told that Peter and John are, are discharged. All the religious leaders can do is threaten them a little more. Joseph Klausner, who's a 20th century Jewish historian, said this about Acts chapter four. He said, this was the first mistake which the Jewish leaders made with regard to the new sect. And this mistake was fatal, he says, there was probably no need to arrest the Nazarenes, thus calling attention to them and making them quote-unquote martyrs. But once arrested, they should not have been freed so quickly. The arrest and release increased the number of believers. For these events showed that on the one hand that the new sect was a power which the authorities feared enough to persecute. And on the other hand, they proved that there was no danger of being a disciple of Jesus. 
He, of course, being the one who had saved them from the hand of their persecutors. Which is not to say that those who follow Jesus and boldly proclaim the hope of salvation in his name won't face persecution, right? We'll see persecution and martyrdom throughout the book of Acts. It is to say that nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. And you're a testimony to that today. That not even the best ideas and strategies of the greatest authorities and power can stop the name of Jesus Christ from being glorified. That this is the seed of Christianity and the, the earliest expressions of the New Testament church which have lived on to this moment as we come into this makeshift auditorium to worship Jesus right now as you sit in your chair. It's amazing to think about. In working through a passage like this, you heard me pray this earlier. It might be easy to, to wonder, well, what's in this for me? Like, I, I've never been thrown into the slammer. Like, I don't know what that's like, you know, out of love for Jesus. Uh, I've never been threatened as it pertains to my life. Never had a gun held to my head and asked, do you love Jesus or not? And had to respond to that. So what do we do with this? What, what can we say in light of a passage like this? This is the bizarre thing. This might be the passage that you would think there might be the least application connected to. And yet I've got seven points of application. So here we go. I'll just throw these out there to you. Words of comfort and encouragement. I'll be quick, I promise. And we'll get out of here in no particular order. Number one. The Holy Spirit is powerful to embolden us to proclaim the gospel. We've been talking about this for weeks now, that we don't have to rely on our own strength as Christians on the mission field. We don't have to trust in our own power, uh, in our own um, cleverness, our own attempt to bring together lofty words of wisdom. Peter's a great case study here. Remember the same Peter who denied Jesus in the presence of an adolescent girl here in this moment before 71 of the most powerful people in the city of Jerusalem, filled with the Spirit, verse 8, proclaims the gospel. The Spirit is powerful to embolden the greatest cowards on earth who couldn't stand up to adolescent girls in previous moments. So know that the Spirit can empower you. Number two, the hope of resurrection is powerful to sustain us in moments of persecution. Whether it be a, a mocking word from a neighbor or a friend as you engage in conversations about Jesus or a night in the county jail, it just doesn't matter. Not only had the disciples been with Jesus, they knew the hope of resurrection in the resurrected Christ. They, they knew that Jesus came out okay on the other side of death because they saw it with their own eyes. And so the, the clear connector for them was, so will we. Like to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To live as Christ, to die is gain, in the words of the apostle Paul. That kind of thinking, that kind of believing creates an army of missionaries who cannot be stopped, which is why we sit here today worshiping Jesus. Because the army of the church has marched forward for 2,000 years and has yet to be stopped. What's the worst you can do to me? Kill me? Martin Luther in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, said, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. And the resurrection of Jesus is meant to liberate us, to liberate us from our fear, to liberate us from our complacency, to liberate us from our despair. Number three, pretty explicit in the text, Jesus alone is the sufficient cornerstone and savior. He's a sufficient cornerstone, which helps to make sense of why the other things that we seek to build our lives on don't seem to hold up over the course of time. 
It's a reminder that Jesus is the only one worth building our lives on as the cornerstone. Not only that, he alone is a sufficient savior. And that's not just pertaining to uh, eternal salvation, though it does embolden our message all the more, gives us reason to proclaim the name of Jesus to everyone we come in contact with. But it also means that we can let go of the functional saviors that we're trusting to rescue us day by day. That we talked about this before. We all have our own personal hells, whatever that might be, loneliness or um, uh, an empty bank account, fill in the blank with whatever your version of a personal hell might be. And thus we turn to functional saviors to deliver us from those personal hells. Most of us are not experiencing the daily temptation to bow down to little golden Buddha statues. Right? For most of us, the daily temptation is to bow down to money or family or sex or career or a love interest, good things that promise to bless us if we will treat them as God things and curse us if we don't. Just as Jesus is the only sufficient cornerstone, the only one worth building our lives on, so he is the only sufficient savior, which means that, that we can actually know the freedom of relinquishing our grip on those things that we're trusting to rescue us who aren't, aren't Jesus. And, and here's even better news. If you're a person who defaults into really believing that Jesus could have accomplished fully your salvation and think you need to earn it a little bit, that also includes you. That there is salvation in no one else, and that means you. There's no other name, and that means your name. Like, it's not Jesus did 90% of the lifting as it pertains to your salvation, and, and you bring your name alongside his and add your signature to the document of what was accomplished on the cross. No, there is no other name. And thus, you can be freed from, from trying to live in the pursuit of God, God's acceptance and know that you are sitting in a position of acceptance because of what Christ has accomplished for you already. And thus, you're free to to do good works as an act of worship, not in an effort to try to earn God's love. We don't have to live that way because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ. Number four, credentials, whoa. credentials are not required to make an internal impact. Isn't that good news? While Christians should certainly be well-trained in God's word, shouldn't be a biblically illiterate army out there with marching orders. It wasn't a formal theological education or credential pedigree that gave Peter and John boldness and clarity. It was time spent with Jesus and the indwelling of his spirit. That's encouraging. Like, as we abide in Christ the vine, John 15, we will bear fruit. That as we walk by the spirit, Galatians 5, we will bear the fruit of the spirit emboldened to declare that Jesus is the one who has made us well, just like that lame beggar back in chapter three. Number five, I mentioned this earlier. We, we can know to some degree what we're up against as missionaries. That similar to, to what you see in this passage, what you see back in Jesus's day, there are modern day Pharisees and Sadducees. There are those who seek to add to the scriptures legalistically so that the gospel becomes Jesus plus all these other things. And there are those like the Sadducees who seek to take away from scripture and say, we can't believe these things to be true in the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun. And then if we could broaden it out even more to a positional issue, we also know that like the religious leaders in Acts chapter four, the world is filled with people committing to do, doing whatever it takes to protect their own interests. 
even when surrounded by undeniable evidences of the glory of Christ. Maybe you find yourself discouraged going, I'm putting forth all the evidence that Jesus is supremely valuable. Why are not more people turning to Jesus and seeing and savoring him and his supreme worth? Acts chapter four helps to explain some of what's going on there so that we're not in the dark. We can aim our evangelistic arrows with some sort of precision, knowing that there are many around us not asking what must we do to be saved, but rather what must we do to preserve our position, our power, our authority, our comfort, our safety, and so forth and so on. And and we can present to them a Jesus who is the only one who can truly preserve and save them. Number six, and I, this is a critical one for me personally. The difficulties we go through are opportunities for Christ to shine. What do I mean by that? We've talked about suffering, hardship, pain numerous times as a church. And more often than not, the application point has been, hey, God's taking you through that as the refining fire of his love, as a father who loves you as a beloved son or a beloved daughter, that it's actually for your growth and intimacy with him and your dependency upon him. But, but I think here in Acts chapter four, we see a different angle of application as it pertains to going through difficult things. Anybody in here going through some hard stuff right now? Consider this, going back to the last point. We, we most certainly live in a self-sufficient culture, do we not? When was the last time you walked to your neighbor and borrowed a cup of sugar? That does not happen around here. You don't borrow things. You own things because you're a self-sufficient human being who needs no one else to accomplish your purposes in life, right? That's the world that we live in. We live in a self-sufficient society. What is one of the greatest apologetics for the gospel? It's God's people going through hard things and in the midst of them saying, Jesus Christ is really, truly enough. Think about that. As you consider what you're going through, the difficulties that you're facing, the struggles that you're dealing with, the tears that you're shedding over things in life right now, whether it be um, just things that you're situationally going through or being surrounded with the, the reality of living in a broken, fallen world, and you're walking through hard stuff, think about the, the evangelistic display that that creates for a self-sufficient society looking in on your life so that I would say, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste the dark nights of your soul. See the difficulties that you go through as opportunities for Jesus to shine in the midst of a self-sufficient society. Opportunities to declare that Jesus is enough in the midst of the fire and flame, whatever the fire and flame looks like. And lastly, and this one helps me to sleep well at night, we're free to trust God with the results of our evangelism. That we, we don't have the power to make people alive in Christ Our job is simply to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. The aroma of life to thousands in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, the stench of death to the priests, Sadducees, rulers, elders, and scribes. And it was the one and same message that Peter was proclaiming. The Puritans said it well, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. That our responsibility as followers of Jesus is to proclaim the good news. That's it and to trust the the melting of hearts to the God of salvation, remembering that, that nothing 
can stop the spread of the gospel as we see in this morning's passage. Not even the best ideas, the best strategies of the greatest authorities in power. Jesus Christ will be glorified and he will be glorified in and through you.